Today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first of the four Gospels, and we're going to be in the 25th chapter of Matthew. And today, especially, as always, I want to encourage you, be a skeptic. Don't believe anything I say. Do the research for yourself, check it out, find out if it's true, make sure that it's true, be a student of the Bible and concern yourself with truth. Don't be somebody who gets their truth secondhand from somebody else. Dig into the word of God for yourself and find out if it's true. I'm gonna share some challenging things today and so the challenge I wanna put out right now is to ask yourself the question, is this true, does the Bible say this? Because we live in a culture where increasingly our feelings are being elevated above what is true. And what I mean by that is we live in a culture where if we feel something, we believe it must therefore be true. Well, I feel this isn't right. I feel this is right, so therefore it's true. But I want to encourage you to be truly concerned with the truth today, not just your first emotional reaction to anything we may discuss. Last week, we were in the fourth part of this really famous message that Jesus taught called the Olivet Discourse. It's named after the location where Jesus delivered this message. It was on the Mount of Olives, which is a hillside that overlooks Jerusalem. And it's a well-known message because its content is so compelling. It's highly prophetic in that Jesus looks ahead to future events, predicts things that are going to happen, gives signs that are going to precede some of these events, and talks about all of this with stunning specificity. And to make it even more compelling, some of the things Jesus talked about actually happened as little as 38 years after he shared this message, authenticating everything else that he said. That's why it's so interesting. And last week we heard Jesus talk to us about the reality that one way or another, we're all going to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for our lives. And if you're a believer, that account will determine your eternal rewards. And so Jesus encouraged us in the text we studied last week over and over again to live expecting his return at any moment because when you live that way, for real, it causes you to live radically for Jesus in radical devotion to him. And if you missed any of the last four weeks, I encourage you to listen or watch online and catch up. It really is fascinating stuff. This week, Jesus is going to share two parables in Matthew 25. Parables are just stories that simplify a, a deep, deep truth for those that are willing to hear. One parable is gonna be about salvation, what it takes to get to heaven, the other is going to be about stewardship, which is just what we do in this life with what we've been given. And then Jesus is going to talk about a judgment that's going to take place when he returns to the earth. There's a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven. So you've got to understand, Jesus is referring to a future time when heaven comes to earth, which happens when? At the second coming. And kicks off what era? an era known as the millennium. So in other words, at a point in the future, Jesus is going to return to the earth to rule the earth, and he's gonna rule the earth for a thousand years. That period is known as the millennium. He's gonna rule from Jerusalem, and everything on the earth is going to be made right and new as it was in Eden. And as we said over the last couple of weeks, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about heaven coming to earth, Jesus literally reigning over the earth, something that, if you haven't figured out yet, has not happened yet. Jesus is not in Jerusalem, he's not reigning over the earth, everything is not right yet. So he says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I put this on your notes, but those referred to here as virgins are simply bridesmaids. And we're just going to call them bridesmaids from here on out to clear up the confusion. So a typical Jewish wedding at this time would begin at the bride's house when the bridegroom arrived to collect his bride. And although the wedding's day would be known in the community, so everyone would know it's happening Tuesday, the exact hour would be a surprise. You see, the groom could come early in the morning or late at night, and everybody had to be ready for any type of scenario. And after the bridegroom has collected his bride, the bride and the bridegroom would lead a procession to his house, which was really his father's house that he had added a room onto for the completion of the festivities, so for the wedding feast and all that sort of stuff. They'd go there together. Now, if you've been here before, you know there's some incredible parallels and insight between a traditional Jewish wedding 
and end times events. We don't have time to get into that today, so I just put a little note on your outline to check out a message that we taught on Revelation 19 if you want to know more about that and understand that more deeply. Before a night wedding, lamps, which were actually torches, would be needed for the procession. And you've probably seen something like these before, whether it's paraffin or kerosene or some type of flammable liquid that's in some sort of container and you have a little wick or a cloth that goes into the flammable liquid and comes out and that flammable liquid fuels that flame. That's what we're talking about here. They were using a type of oil as the flammable liquid to keep these torches burning. But the problem was, if you had no oil, you had no flammable liquid, you had no torch. The light went out. Now, I want to give you a key understanding to this parable right up front so that you can read it with this understanding. Make a note of this. Throughout the Bible, oil is used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, oil is used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. This is a biblical concept called expositional constancy. It's a fancy word, but all it means is is when a metaphor or an idiom shows up in the Bible, it tends to do so constantly. So pretty much every time oil shows up in the Bible, it's a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what verse 2 tells us about these ten bridesmaids. Let's read. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. They got their lamps ready for their big moment. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Basically, they had lamps, they had wicks, they didn't have any oil. They just lit the wick and very quickly it burns out. Verse 9, but the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, underline that word again. We saw it last week over and over. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So of the ten bridesmaids, only five had oil in their lamps. And when the bridegroom came at midnight, the other five were left out of the procession. So what is Jesus saying? Well, I studied this quite a bit this week, and there was something that was just bothering me about this because of what we talked about with the oil, expositional constancy. You see, every time Jesus tells a parable that involves a wedding, the bride is always a reference to the church, and the bridegroom is always a reference to Jesus. And so what bothered me about this is we, the church, people who believe in God, we can't be both the bride and the bridesmaids. It doesn't make any sense. You see, Jesus talked consistently about himself as the bridegroom, the church as the bride. And that all comes together at an event when Jesus and his church, all believers, come together at an event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's mentioned in Revelation 19.9. We believe it's going to begin in heaven, this marriage supper, but we're not actually sure whether it will end in heaven or it will end on the earth at the second coming. But after studying this week's text, I really believe this marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church, the bride of Christ, comes together with Jesus, the bridegroom, I really believe it's gonna begin in heaven and it's gonna end on the earth at the beginning of Christ's reign at the second coming. And you'll find out why in just a moment. You see, I believe that of the two parables we're gonna look at today, the first, this one, is for the Jews, while the second one is for us, the church. So make a note of this. If Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, then the bridesmaids are Jews who are on the earth following the rapture. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more, but I just want to give you the punchline up front. I really believe that these bridesmaids are a reference to Jews who are on the earth after the rapture. They're left on the earth because they don't believe in Jesus yet. 
So soon after the rapture, the rapture is going to happen. Jesus is going to take everyone who believes in him, who loves him, who's put their faith and trust in him. He's going to remove them all from the earth at the same time, take them up to heaven to be with them. Shortly after that, a period of seven years is going to begin. And the back half of those seven years will be known as the Great Tribulation. It's going to be the worst time of persecution the Jews have ever seen. The Bible says two out of every three Jews on the earth will be killed. But during that time, God is going to raise up 144,000 Jewish men, 144,000 kosher Billy Grahams, basically, to be missionaries to the whole world, including their people, the Jews. However, not all the Jews will listen to the message of the gospel, and it would seem that those who harden their hearts against Jesus in the tribulation will be those Jews who died during the tribulation, while those who receive the gospel will be preserved through the tribulation and will be kept alive to see the return of Jesus at the end of the great tribulation. And so the word of counsel being given to the Jews by Jesus is to realize that simply being around God type stuff, being around the law, being around Torah, being around your synagogue, being in the Holy Land, being around Jerusalem, simply being around the wedding is not enough to get you in the wedding. Because did you notice that in the parable, these bridesmaids clearly think they're saved. They think they're covered for whatever scenario is happening. We don't even need to bring this oil because we've got our lamp and that's good enough. We'll figure it out later. There's nothing in their mind that envisions a scenario in which they're left out here. We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. We don't have to do anything. We're we're just blessed because it's who we are. Jesus says that's not enough. You need oil in your lamp. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be saved. And here's what's true for you and I and those Jesus is speaking to through this parable. When we place our faith in Jesus to save us from our sins, we receive the Holy Spirit in us as a seal. Ephesians 1 says it marks us as saved and there's nothing that can be done to take that mark away. Now, if you don't have the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and you end up standing before Jesus, you're going to be like one of those bridesmaids who had no oil. We may think we know Jesus, but Jesus doesn't know us. And there won't be any more time to get oil. There won't be any more time to put your faith in Jesus. It'll be too late, and you'll be left in darkness. And I also can't help noticing, write this down, that according to this parable, Everyone is responsible for their own salvation decision. Everyone is responsible for their own salvation decision. Did you catch that? That when the time came, none of the bridesmaids who didn't have oil were able to get some from those who did. They couldn't bootleg off their stash. You're not saved because your mom or dad were believers. You're not saved because you hang out with believers and the church. You have to make your own decision and have your own relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to be in you. You have to have your own oil. This is why I would rather see somebody give their lives to Jesus a hundred times over. Even though I know they're saved. I'd still rather see that than see the person who comes to church every now and then and says, you know, I'm good, man. I, I, I go to church. When I'm here, I put a little something in the offering and, you know, I'm covered. Christmas and Easter every year, baby. I'd much rather see a person give their life to Jesus over and over again just to make sure they're saved than see a person think they're good when they're not. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be sure. Today is the day to know that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and ready to meet Jesus no matter what happens. Don't leave here today without knowing that you're saved. You're going to have a chance to do that at the end of this message. Don't leave here today without knowing that when you stand before Jesus, you'll be ready. Now, the second parable is for the church, everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus. One of the great debates throughout Christianity through the centuries has been the tension between faith and works. You see, in the Old Testament of the Bible, God gave the law, which was basically God saying, If you want to try and be good enough for God on your own, just do your best to be a good person. If you want to know what God's standard is of a good person, here's what it is. You see, even today, the problem is 
we, we say, I'm a good person. But in that scenario, who's the judge of what a good person is? We are. And we're not comparing ourselves to Mother Teresa, are we? We're finding somebody worse than us and we're going, I'm a good person. But the problem is, when your life is over, you're not going to stand before yourself and be judged by yourself. You're going to stand before God. And his standard is the one that will matter. So in the Old Testament, God gave us the law. And he says, this is what it looks like to be good in the eyes of God. Do this perfectly. And of course, nobody could. And the Bible tells us that was the whole point. To prove to us, to show us that we're not good. That none of us can meet God's standards. When Jesus came to the earth as a man... One of the things he came to do was to live the perfect life that none of us could live. And in doing that, by living the perfect life, it qualified him to be the only person who could die in our place and take our punishment in our place. He had to be perfect, and he was. And because Jesus took care of the works, the things we have to do to be saved, because Jesus took care of the works by living that perfect life for us, We're now saved not by doing anything but by believing in Jesus instead of trying to live a perfect life. So throughout the centuries, people have gone to extremes on either side of this debate. There are those who say, Jesus took care of all the works, so it doesn't matter. All we need to do is believe and we can do whatever the heck we want. That's one side. On the flip side, there are those who say, no, no, works still matter. It's just that Jesus' life and death means You're sort of in a lottery now. Now there's actually a chance that you could get into heaven if you're really, 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 really good. And that would be the extreme on the other side. But let me point this out. In the parable we just read about the bridesmaids, what was the single determining factor in which bridesmaids got into the wedding? What was the only factor? Those who had oil got in. Those who did not, did not. Those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit are saved. Those who are not sealed with the Holy Spirit are not. There's nothing in that parable about works. Everything is about being sealed with the Spirit, being saved. In the New Testament, the book of James really settles this faith and works issue when he says, I put it on your outline, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the whole book of James talks about the idea that faith produces good works. The Bible calls this concept fruit. The idea is that good works are a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit being in our lives. In other words, you can't have the Holy Spirit in you, the presence of God in you, and not naturally produce some good works, what the Bible would call the fruit of the Spirit. You see, fruit trees produce fruit. It's just what they do. And the same is true of believers. The Holy Spirit naturally produces good spiritual fruit in our lives. So with that in mind, let's read verse 14 as Jesus shares his next parable. He says, for the kingdom of heaven, again, underline kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the millennium. He's talking now about how he, Jesus, is going to decide who gets what responsibility in the millennium. How is he going to decide which believer rules over cities or towns or countries? How is he going to do that? He's going to tell us here. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. So write this down. The man is Jesus, and the servants are professing believers. That simply means people who claim to be believers. That's going to be important for our study. The man is Jesus and the servants are professing believers. People who say, yep, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Verse 15, and he gave five talents to one and to another two and to another one to each according to his own ability and immediately he went on a journey. You see, a talent was a measure of weight. And so here's the idea. A talent of silver is not going to be worth as much as a talent of gold. But a talent of silver was a considerable amount of money. In fact, it would be the equivalent of 20 years wages to a laborer like one of these servants. 
So he's left them an enormous amount of money. Don't get confused by the word talent. It's not talking exclusively about natural abilities. It's just the way the word translates. It's a little wordplay between the original Greek and our English today. What it's really talking about here is everything the Lord has given you in life. That could be financial resources. It includes your natural abilities, but relationships, the time that's in every day that you get to live, your career, everything. So write this down. The talents represent everything the Lord has given us in life. The talents represent everything that the Lord has given us in life. Every gift, every ability, a sound mind, time in the day, everything, be it much or be it little. Verse 16, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them. So he took those five talents and he went and did business with that money and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid and then underline his Lord's money. I want to make sure we don't miss that. Whose money was it? His Lord's. His Lord's money. I could do a whole sermon, but I won't. Verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. That means the master had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with each servant, asking them to give an account for what they did with the money. What did you do with my money while I was away? How did you put it to work? So write this down. We will each give an account for what we did with what we were given. We will each give an account to Jesus for what we did with what we were given. Verse 20. So he who had received five talents and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, and then underline this, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And we need to stop here for a minute because there's something, something too important for us to miss. You know, when I was in my early 20s and going back into my, my late teens, I, I knew I had a gift for, for speaking, public speaking. I had some gifts with music and, and worship, and it was a, just a great time in life. You know, a lot of people who were believers were really encouraging and spoken to my life and would just talk about my potential, this word, potential. Man, you're, you're going to lead a massive church one day. You're going to lead worship to thousands and thousands of people one day, and then and then time passes, and before you know it, you're, you're suddenly too old to use the word potential anymore. And you begin to wonder, man, what, what happened to all of that stuff? What happened to all those careers I was going to try one day? What happened to all those dreams? What happened to all those things that I was going to study? You know, I'm 34, and some of you are really old, like 40 or like even older, but I'm sure you can relate. I know you can relate to that feeling of what happened? What, what happened to all those dreams of my youth? What, what happened to all those things I was going to do with all those subjects in school that I was so good at? And what you find is that those things were replaced by mundane realities. And mundane doesn't mean bad. It just means normal, repetitive. Daily tasks that needed to get done in order to make life happen. Work, kids, church. And it's easy to slip into this mode where you find yourself waking up one day and thinking, man, I wish I had more important things to do in life. I wish I, I, wish I had just seized those moments when I was younger and, and lived up to my potential. And let me show you what I mean. Put your hand up if you believe that you've lived up to your full potential. Anybody here feel like I have fulfilled the promise of my youth? I have maxed out my gifts and talents. I've stretched my intellect to the max. The person you see before you is the best version of myself that I ever could have been. Nobody really believes that. Nobody feels that way. Isn't that unbelievable? Every single one of us believes we have wasted potential in our life. Every single one of us. But then I notice the words of Jesus in this parable. I'm bringing this around because some of you are like ready to jump off a bridge right now. Hang with me. We're going to bring this thing home. But I notice the words of Jesus in this parable. He says, well done, 
good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And the part that blesses me is where Jesus says you were faithful over what? A few things. A few things. They weren't huge things. In the eyes of the world, they weren't important things. They weren't things that brought you acclaim and attention and applause and awards during your life. But Jesus will say, but I was watching. And what I saw was you being faithful in those few things. And that's all I was looking for from you. And so now, I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Paul writes in the book of Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men. Do it like you're doing it for God, not for people. And Paul says that to us because it's really true. We really are doing our everyday stuff. We really are doing the mundane for the Lord. And you might think you're just going off to do a job, some tasks to get yourself a paycheck. You might think you're just busy with the kids in a whirlwind of activity. You might think you're just cleaning up the yard, you're just making dinner, but Jesus is looking at you and I and he's asking himself the question, are they being faithful in these little things? Are they keeping a grateful attitude? Are they gladly taking the place of a servant instead of demanding to be served? Are they giving their all? to the tasks I've given them to do today. And when Jesus says, I'll make you ruler over many things, he's talking about putting you and I in positions of authority when he reigns on the earth and in the kingdom that will exist for eternity after that. You and I have no idea how much the mundane, everyday stuff matters. We have no idea this life is a job interview for the kingdom that's going to come. Listen to me. What you do today and what you do tomorrow matters more than I could ever express to you. It matters. It matters so much. Write this down. Our mundane daily tasks are part of a job interview for our future career in the kingdom of heaven. Our mundane daily tasks are part of a job interview for our future career in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing you do is insignificant. The master is watching. And he's not looking to see who gets famous or who gets wealthy. He's looking to see who's faithful. Who's faithful? Well, faithful with what? Whatever. Whatever he's given you. So forget about all the potential that you might feel that you've squandered. You still have right now the potential to be great in the only place that matters, the kingdom of heaven. In the eyes of the Lord, faithfulness is greatness. Really take that in. In the eyes of the Lord, faithfulness is greatness. And so in the kingdom of heaven, Anybody has the potential to be great. If we'll just say right now, I choose to be faithful where I am with the life I've been given right now. Verse 22, he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, and then underline all this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And I had you underline that because if you haven't noticed, it's the exact same thing the master said to the servant with five talents, which proves that the reward that the master gives is not based on results, it's based on faithfulness. In other words, you get the same reward for being faithful with whatever it is that you had. If you're faithful with $10 or $10 billion, it's the same reward because the Lord is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for faithfulness. It's not about how much you've been entrusted with 
or how important anybody else thinks the daily tasks in your life are. It's about whether or not you're being faithful with those things. Write this down. Every believer has the same opportunity at eternal rewards because the Lord is looking for faithfulness. We've all got the same opportunity. He's looking for faithfulness. We've all been given something. And so we all have the same opportunity to be faithful with what it is we've been given. Don't miss the opportunities you have every day. Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. You see, the fact that this guy characterizes the master, Jesus, as a cruel and ruthless opportunist reveals that he doesn't really know him because that's not the way the master is. But this guy doesn't have a relationship with him, and that's why I'm going to suggest he's a professing believer. He claims to be a believer, but he's not a true believer. He goes on and he says, And I was afraid and, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Isn't it fascinating in this parable that the servant who's in danger is not the one who had ten talents. It's not the one who had five or four. I'm sorry, I'm getting those guys mixed up. You get it, the two had the most. The one who's in danger is the servant who had one. And the Lord constructed this parable that way intentionally. I believe to warn us of the danger of taking the attitude, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. I'm useless. There's no point signing up to serve because nobody wants what I have. So I'll just dig a hole. I'll just sit in it. The Eeyore mentality, right? And in this parable, that's the guy who's in danger. Listen to me. The one talent guy had the same opportunity at the same reward as the guy who was entrusted with two talents and the guy who was entrusted with five. He had the same opportunity. And so do you. If you want to be involved with serving your brothers and sisters here at the church, just mark on the back of your connection card. There's a box for that. I guarantee there's a place for you to start being faithful right here. Are you a lady who can change a diaper? Are you a man who can set up a folding table? Are you a person who can smile at someone and give them a Bible? You have a talent. Use it. Don't bury it. Don't sit in a hole. Will you use the talent that you've been given? Here's the question. Or will you bury it? under a pile of self-pity and self-absorption. Telling yourself you're not good enough when the problem is you're really so absorbed with yourself, so focused on yourself and your inadequacies that you're unable to hear, unwilling to hear the message of God who says, I can use you. I can use you. That sort of self-pity is really just self-absorption. You're so consumed with yourself that you won't listen to what God says about you. He says you've got a talent. you got something to offer. Use it. The one talent guy didn't, and that's why we read in verse 26, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Here's what he's doing. The master's simply using the man's own words to condemn him. You see, he's saying, if you really believed that I'm this harsh, ruthless, and cruel master, and you were afraid of me, if you were really afraid of me, then you would have at least put my money in the bank where it could gain some interest because you would have been too scared to stand before me like you are now with nothing other than what I gave you. If you really were scared by me, then that fear would have motivated you to do something and I believe this speaks to the reality that God gives gifts and abilities and resources to everybody, not just believers. And this is speaking to those who use the gifts that God has given them for themselves, for their own glory, for their own purposes. And when they stand before the Lord one day, they'll have nothing to show because God's not impressed with cash or big houses or award trophies. And they're going to have to give an account. When God says, hey, what did you do with those gifts and abilities and resources I gave you? I spent them all on myself. So you've got nothing. I've got nothing. Verse 28, the master says, so take the talent from him 
and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Here's the idea. At the end of this world, there will be no middle class. There will be the haves and the have-nots. The haves will be those who've placed their faith in Jesus. And not only will they be saved and spend eternity in heaven, but they'll get rewards and blessings that are unbelievable. Truly, the rich will get richer. The have-nots will be those who turn down God's kindness, God's patience, and God's offer to save them. Instead, clinging to the things of this world and in a tragic irony, losing everything. Verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the, underlying outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness is what we would call hell. And as we learned last week, the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth was a Hebrew phrase that refers to, to bitter disappointment, bitter disappointment. This parable told by Jesus makes it clear that those who are faithful are ultimately going to end up being fruitful to some degree. One of my pastors once encouraged me in the area of fruitfulness by telling me this. I love this. He said, Jeff, you know, we often think that, oh, if I'm faithful, then I'll be fruitful. And he said, that's often not how it works. Most times it goes faithful, 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 then fruitful. That's a word for somebody in here today. There might be an area of your life where you're doing your best to be faithful, but it just seems like there's no fruit. Man, keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. The fruit will come, I guarantee it. Well, on the flip side in this parable, the the fruitless person, the servant who didn't produce anything from what he was given, is unmasked as a hypocrite and he's utterly destroyed. You see, if there's no fruit in your life, you need to check yourself because fruit is the evidence that God is in us. Good works are not the thing that save us, but they do reveal that God's in us doing something. If there's no fruit in your life, you need to make sure you've got the Holy Spirit in your life. You need to ask yourself, am I really saved? Don't leave today without knowing. Verse 31, third section of this chapter Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. A little bit of Bible trivia. Whose throne is Jesus on right now? The Father's throne. He's not on his own throne yet. That's yet to come. This verse is talking about the beginning of the millennium. If you want to look it up, it's Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. So this verse is talking about... The second coming has happened. Jesus has returned to the earth with us, his church. He's ruling and reigning in Jerusalem from his own throne. That's what it's talking about here in verse 31. The judgment that's going to be described here is different to the great white throne judgment. If you want to make a note, that takes place in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. The great white throne judgment takes place at the end of the millennium, after Jesus has reigned on the earth for a thousand years. This judgment here takes place at the beginning of the millennium. And the prophet Joel tells us in his book in the Bible, in Joel chapter 3, that this judgment is only for those who are alive on the earth at the time of the second coming. So the great tribulation has happened. It's come to a conclusion. The second coming has happened. In this judgment, Jesus gathers all those who are alive on the earth at this time, at the time of the second coming. That's what this is. This judgment is going to take place, we're told by Joel, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is today known as the Kidron Valley. It's the valley that divides the Mount of Olives from the old city of Jerusalem. It runs right through the middle of Jerusalem. It's sometimes called the judgment of nations, but not because Jesus is judging nations as whole countries, he's judging people from all the nations of the earth. So to be clear, putting this all together, this judgment's not for the church. Why? Church is already gone. We've been with Jesus in heaven for at least seven years. We were raptured before all of this stuff went down. When Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming, we will return to reign with him. But this judgment doesn't involve the church. It doesn't involve you if you put your faith in Jesus. It's a judgment for those who survive the great tribulation and are alive on the earth at the time of the second coming. Jesus destroys the armies of Antichrist at Armageddon, arrives in Jerusalem, and this judgment takes place. So make a note of this. Even though it's a long point, I try to make it clear. 
this judgment takes place at the beginning of the millennium and concerns those still alive on the earth at the end of the great tribulation. Not the church. This is not a judgment involving the church. It takes place at the beginning of the millennium and concerns those who are still alive at the end of the great tribulation. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. For reasons we don't have time to get into throughout the Bible, we know that the sheep here are given the place at his right hand, the place of favor. The goats are consigned to the place of dishonor and rejection. Basically, sheep good, goats bad. That's all you need to know right now. Verse 34, then the king, I love that, the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right hand, the sheep, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, underline prepared for you. Prepared for you, when? From the foundation of the world. He's saying this was your destiny before the world even existed. And so this tells us that the sheep in this scenario are those who are saved. They found salvation during the time period that followed the rapture. So between the rapture and the second coming, they got saved. They put their faith in Jesus. When Jesus says that the kingdom was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, it just proves that our salvation is a gracious gift from God. It's not something that we earn. We're not gonna get into the whole mystery of salvation today, but, but here's the basic deal. The Lord knew that they would choose him, and so he chose them and made sure that they ended up in his kingdom. And I point that out because the next two verses are gonna have Jesus rewarding these sheep for actions and good works that they've done. But I want you to notice before we get into that, they're not being saved because they did those good works. They're being saved because they belong to Jesus. They were destined to belong to Jesus. It's got nothing to do with anything they did. Faith in Jesus is what saves us, period. The good works they'll be rewarded for are the fruit of their salvation, not the root of their salvation. So make a note of this. These sheep will go into the millennium. They'll go into the millennium. These are going to be the people who we are going to rule and reign over during the millennium if you've placed your faith in Jesus. They'll repopulate the earth. It's going to be a wonderful, amazing time. Then if you know Revelation, at the end of the millennium, at the end of those thousand years, Satan is going to be released one last time to provide a choice for all those who were born and raised in the millennium. See, during the millennium, it's going to go back to an Eden-like state, and, and people aren't really going to be dying from natural causes anymore. If you read the biblical account of Adam and Eve, there's no mention of death at all in the Garden of Eden. There's no indication they would have ever died if they hadn't sinned. And it's going to be like that in the millennium again. So there'll be generations, tons of generations of people who've only ever known the rule and reign of Jesus and everything being perfect. And so to give them a choice, Satan will be released, the Bible says, at the end of those thousand years. And incredibly, some of them will decide to align themselves with Satan. Part of what that's going to do is, is it's going to prove that we as human beings are not good. Because there's many people who say, well, the only reason people aren't good is because they were raised in homes that aren't good. With parents who have issues. And if we could just get... If we could just Fix the environment that we grow up in, then we'd all be great. And what's going to happen at the end of the millennium is going to disprove that. You and I are locked in. Our salvation is secure. We're in our resurrected bodies. We're all good. We're not going to be deceived by that, so don't worry about it. Well, Jesus goes on, and then he says to the sheep, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to, underline, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So please remember, Jesus is talking to those who came to salvation after the rapture and survived through the great tribulation. And he's commending them for their good works toward a specific group of people. What group does he call them? My brethren. 
my brethren. So who are the brethren of Jesus? Well, I don't think it's a reference to the four half-brothers Jesus had in his family while he was on the earth because they're not on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And it can't be the church because the church has been raptured. But there is another group in places like Deuteronomy 17 that is called his brethren, his brothers. It's a term that's used to refer in multiple places in the Bible to the Jews. And so by simple process of elimination, I would suggest to you that when Jesus speaks here of my brethren, he's referring to the Jews and the good works he's commending the sheep for doing refers to acts of kindness, compassion, and sympathy for the Jews. When? Well, during the time following the rapture, especially during the great tribulation when the persecution against the Jews will be worse than it's ever been in history, killing two out of every three Jews on the earth. So write this down. My brethren is a reference to Israel and the Jews. Israel and the Jews. Now you can decide if I'm reaching with this next point. But there's something in here that that blesses me deeply. Because even though we're not going to be judged at this judgment, we will give an account, like the servants with the talents, for what we did with what we were given in our lives. It won't be an account that we'll give for salvation. It'll be an account we'll give to determine our eternal rewards. And yet when I think about standing before Jesus, I tend to immediately think about all the wasted opportunities, all the things I should have done but I didn't, stuff like that. And yet, if you studied Revelation with us, you know it's far better to be part of the church than to find salvation after the rapture. You're in a better place in eternity if you put your faith in Jesus before all that stuff goes down. It's way better to be a part of the church. And yet here, among those who put their faith in Jesus after the rapture, is a judgment described by Jesus in which believers are completely unaware of how much Jesus is going to reward them for. They've done good deeds that Jesus is applauding them for that they don't even remember doing. They weren't even counting them as good deeds when they were doing them. And I really believe that you and I, those who love the Lord and are doing their best to be faithful to him, are in for the most wonderful of surprises when we stand before the Lord one day. Because even though we might have it in our minds that it's a short list of notable good things we did for the Lord during our lives, I think we're going to find that Jesus has a way of pulling out the praiseworthy things out of moments and seasons and times in our lives where we thought there was nothing worth praising, nothing worth mentioning. And I think as happens here, we're gonna be astounded when Jesus says, hey, I got a lot to commend you for. And our first response is gonna be, were, were you watching the same life that like I was living? Are we, are we on the same page about how my life was lived? And I think he's gonna begin mentioning thing after thing that we didn't even think about. It's gonna be an amazing time and I don't think it's something you need to be fearful of. And that encourages me tremendously. Make a note of this. Those who are faithful to the Lord will naturally produce spiritual fruit without even realizing it's happening. It's gonna be natural if you desire to be faithful to God. You're not even gonna realize it's happening. Little things, those conversations that you really don't wanna be in, but you hang on those few extra minutes because you're like, Yeah, but this person needs to know Jesus loves them. I'm going to hang on. There's going to be a whole bunch of those for believers. If you go to any church, you've been a part of conversations like that. And Jesus, I believe, is going to commend you for little things that you thought, oh, that was nothing. He's going to say, hey, the only reason you did that was because you loved me. And I noticed. I noticed. There's something else I need to say. Because this is, this judgment here, the sheep and goats thing, the least of these things, one of the most misinterpreted passages in the Bible. So I'm going to give you something to talk about over lunch today. I believe that when Jesus says, my brethren in this context, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jews and specifically Israel during the Great Tribulation. But even if you said, no, Jeff, I don't buy that. I'm going to go with another interpretation. Let's admit that we can all agree 
that Jesus is talking to the sheep when he talks about my brethren, right? He's not talking to the goats when he says, you've done well, you've done this for the least of these, my brethren. He's talking to sheep. His audience is the sheep. And I don't think any of us would disagree that the sheep are those who are saved. So here's where I'm going with this. When Jesus talks about the least of these, my brethren, he is not talking about non-believers. He's not talking about non-believers. You, you, you can't make this say that. That's not what happens in the text. So Christians will say, well, Matthew 25 teaches us that homeless guy. It's really Jesus. That homeless person may be opposed to everything to do with Jesus. They may be in absolute rebellion against Jesus. They may not. But in any case, they're not who Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25. They're not the least of these, my brethren. They may not be Jesus' brethren in, in any context. In other words, they may not be Jewish and they may not be a believer. And in that case, there's no biblical grounds for thinking that Jesus is talking about them when he says, my brethren. And misinterpreting this verse is what gets Christians off on bad theology that Jesus loves poor people more than middle class people or wealthy people because they think that Jesus talks here of a special reward for those who show kindness to the poor, the homeless, the sick, and imprisoned criminals. Now hang with me because a lot of you are thinking, you know, I've never heard an anti-social justice message before. This is, this is pretty interesting. Hang with me. Let's see where this is going. How did the Apostle Paul tell the Thessalonian church to run their benevolence ministry? Well, first of all, it was a given. It was just known that they were only helping out other believers who had practical needs. They weren't paying the electric bill of somebody that doesn't go to their church and doesn't believe in God. They weren't doing that. They were only helping out believers in the Thessalonican church. So keep that in mind. And then on top of that, Paul says this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Paul doesn't say, listen, you guys need to jump all over that opportunity because we all know there's a special reward, Jesus said, for feeding the hungry. Paul doesn't say that. He says, if there's any type of work that this brother can do, he should do it. If he can do the landscaping at the church, if he can go and help a widow fix her house, if there's anything he can do, then he should go do that work. And then the church can jump in to make sure he doesn't go hungry. But if he refuses to work and he's just being lazy, Paul says the church should not help him. Don't give him a dime. Don't give him a loaf of bread. Nothing. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the unfaithful is hard. In other words, living in rebellion against God can make your life very difficult. And if you're a believer and you're in rebellion against God, what does the word say? It says, every son he loves, he chastens. He disciplines those he loves. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. So if you've got a believer whose life is difficult because they're in rebellion to God, does the Lord want the church to jump in and make the difficulty he's going through easier? Does the Lord really want the church to jump in and ease the suffering of a brother who's being disciplined by God because he won't repent? In Acts 3, Peter and John are heading into the temple. There's a man by the gate who's lame and unable to walk. He's looking for a cash donation and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. But, but that's not actually true because just back in Acts chapter 2, the church is born and all the believers who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost are pooling all of their resources and their money. And the guys who would have been at the forefront of organizing that whole thing would have been the disciples. They had lots of money. Lots of money. So is Peter lying? No, he's saying silver and gold I do not have for you. For you. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, in that moment, that situation, that man didn't need money. He needed to learn how to walk. In the story of the prodigal son, does the father chase the rebellious son into the far off land and track him down in the pig pen? 
No. He lets his son's sin and rebellion run his course. He doesn't send more money, and he doesn't enable his son's rebellion. He allows the destructive power of sin to bring his son to the breaking point where he repents. That's why we need to be so careful we're not enabling someone's rebellion against the Lord when God's really trying to get them to hit rock bottom because that's the only place where they're going to repent. Once the son repented, check out the story. Once he repents, everything the father has is available to him. Everything. But not until he repents. Because the father would not have been helping the son if he kept sending him more money and says, go on sinning. Go on in rebellion against the Lord. That's not helping somebody. You're not helping them. People need the gospel more than anything. And I know this is a controversial stance, but I firmly believe we've got no business sending our money and resources to help non-believers, strangers, when we have family members, brothers and sisters in the faith around the world who need our help right now. We got no business helping out a stranger when your sister is starving. You got no business doing that. And I want to be clear, there's one huge exception if the Lord tells you to do something different. The Lord tells you to give homeless guy $5. I don't want you to go, well, Pastor Jeff said I shouldn't. Sorry, God. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Do your thing, okay? Kindness is a wonderful thing. Grace is a wonderful thing. Generosity is a wonderful thing. But Matthew 25 is not talking about rewards for showing kindness to non-believers. And the rest of the New Testament is incredibly clear that we are to prioritize caring for the church, the people of God around the world, ahead of caring for those who are in sin and really need to be born again. I know this is still awkward, but I'm passionate about this because I believe this generation, sort of my age and younger, Christians are being confused by Satan into thinking that what Jesus really wants us to do is solve the world's problems by feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, and bringing about social justice. Most people in my generation or younger think that's the gospel. They think that's the gospel. I'm passionate about this because Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Jesus said, what does it matter if you give him a house and you put food on his plate and you give him money and you fix everything wrong with him and he goes to hell? What does it matter? That's what Jesus said. He said, you need to be born again. People need the gospel. And I'm going to put this out there. Here's something fun for you. I challenge you to find me anywhere in the entire Bible where God's people are told to provide food and money to those who are not of the household of faith. Find me anywhere in the whole Bible where we're told to do that. I mean this, for real. Everything the Jews were told to do in the Old Testament regarding widows, orphans, and the poor was in reference to those among them. Other Jews, the household of faith. Even when they're commanded in the Old Testament to show kindness to the alien living among them. You see people jump on this and they go, that's why we should be kind to refugees. You know how when an alien came to live among the people of Israel? They had to turn their back and renounce the people group they came from. They had to discard all of their idols and false gods to join the nation of Israel meant saying, as Ruth did, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. It was turning away from everything and coming into the household of faith. That's the alien that the Jews were told to be kind to. Jesus fed the 5,000. When? After they'd been listening to him teach the word for three days. Three days. The early church took care of their own and it caused the world to look on and say, wow, they really love each other. Jesus didn't say, this is how everyone's going to know that you're my disciples if you give money to the poor. He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Believer to believer. He says, this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples, by the way you love and care for each other in the family of faith. They're going to look on and they're going to say, nobody cares for their own like Christians do. Nobody. They really act like their family. 
There's nowhere in Scripture where God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, there's nowhere in Scripture where God's people are commanded to care for those outside the family of faith. Nowhere. So if you're giving financially to any cause above and beyond your tithe, you should be giving to brothers and sisters of the faith who need help right now. You shouldn't be given to Red Cross. You should be given to the household of faith. They need your help. Well, Jeff, I, 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 feel, I feel like you're wrong. It doesn't really matter what you feel. It matters what the Bible says. And I'm, I'm putting the challenge out there. I'm open to being proven wrong. L- listen, I am under the authority of the word as much as you are. You show me I'm wrong, I'll get up next week and I'll say, hey, I was wrong. I've trimmed it from the message. Let's never speak from it again. Speak about it again. I'll do it. But show me in the word. Show me in the word where I'm wrong. We're supposed to care for and love each other. That doesn't mean you're mean to people who have needs and aren't Christians. It doesn't mean that at all. You follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but the priority is family. Can you really imagine, like really think about this, really imagine how awful it would be to find out that, that, that someone you look up to is, is feeding and housing a homeless stranger they met while their literal blood sister is homeless. That would be awful. You'd think, what's wrong with you? That's what we're doing. When we put resources and finances into meeting the practical needs of non-believers when there are brothers and sisters in the faith. And can I tell you that being a brother or sister in the faith is a deeper connection than blood? It's deeper. When they still have needs. Care for the family first. Care for the family first. Verse 41. We're almost done. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, underline everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, hell is real and it's eternal. There's no annihilation, it's endless. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus will say to them, I put my people among you in the great tribulation. I put my gospel among you in the great tribulation. And you despise my people You despised my message. Verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment. Underline everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Underline eternal life. I put a note of this on your outline. The same Greek word is used for both the word everlasting and eternal. It's the same word. Here's the idea. The punishment of the wicked is as never ending as the bliss of the righteous. It's the same thing. The wicked aren't given a second chance and they're not annihilated. They're not destroyed forever. And with that, Jesus ends the Olivet Discourse, an absolutely profound, detailed, and specific teaching about future events, some already fulfilled, some yet to be fulfilled, and how those events should affect the way we live our daily lives. In conclusion, I'm gonna say this. Jesus loves you. He loves me. and He loves us so much that he decided to share with us the truth and reality of how things are going to play out in eternity. He decided in his kindness to tell us what's really going to matter forever because he desperately wants to be able to say to you and I on the day we stand face to face with him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I think we all want that outcome don't we? I mean, that's the goal. That's the dream. And I would suggest to you this morning, there's just a few key things to remember that will help guarantee that outcome in your life. First, recognize you've been given at least one talent. You have something. You have something to give. You have something to be faithful with. Secondly, recognize that the Lord is looking for faithfulness above all else. He's not looking for you to be faithful with what somebody else was given. He's looking for you to be faithful with what he's given you, whatever it is, much or little. Thirdly, recognize that therefore you have the same opportunity 
at greatness and reward in the kingdom of heaven as any believer who's ever lived. You have the same opportunity as the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, all the greats of the Christian faith. You have the same opportunity because we're only going to be judged on what we did with what we were given. And the bar of success is faithfulness. Faithfulness. So simply do everything you do in life as though you're doing it for the Lord. Because you are. You are. You are. And don't ever view yourself or your life as wasted potential. You do not have any idea the potential every person in this room has and how that can play out in eternity. There are huge things at stake in the life you will live today and the life you will get up and live tomorrow. Huge things, the most important things. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, we thank you so much that what matters most in this life is not the applause we get in this life, not the awards we get in this life. But what matters is being faithful with what you've put in our lives. And so Lord, we just ask for forgiveness if we've ever looked at any area of our life and despised it in any way and said that's not big enough, that's not important enough, it's not good enough. Father, we just recognize that you know what we don't know and you see what we don't see. And everything that you've given us, you've given us intentionally. And the things you haven't given us, you have done so intentionally. We trust your character and we know that you're good. And we know that you've put in our lives things that we can be faithful with. So help us to be faithful. Because what we want more than any acclaim down here is to stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's it, Lord. That's what we want more than anything. So help us, God, to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.